0: Hello, Facebook world! Hello, Rabbi Krug!
1: Hello, Facebook world! Hello... Avi I know,
0: you're fine! Hello, Avi Iglo! And hello, everyone in the Twitter universe! I'm introducing you, Rabbi Krug, to um, everyone who's going to have the privilege of listening in, whether live or on the replay, are going to hear the stories about your father. Okay. So uh, good to me. Your father, Mr. Walter Krug, who mm-hmm. passed away,
1: uh, February 20th was the end of Shvat, and the age of 92. 92 years 92 old. 92 years old. And Nin- uh, as he said uh, right before he died, he Hitler would not be very happy.
0: That, that that that, that you lived to be 92 lived years 92 old.
1: 92 and produced uh, multiple grandchildren and great grandchildren.
0: Unbelievable. So, uh, yeah. Uh, so, and and uh, just to give a little, I want I want you to talk much more, but here your grandfather was, your father, excuse me, your father was born in Berlin, correct?
1: No, he was born in Frankfurt. Oh, in Frankfurt. Frankfurt so it was right about Germany. He was a, what's called a Richtige Deutscher, a real German. He had his like sense of humor surgically removed at birth, like a really <laughs> ecky, or a real, good old fashioned German Jew, you yeah.
0: So before hearing the stories of your father and when i going to get there, I, I how was it growing up as his son? And again, this is a man who everyone's gonna hear how he resisted the Nazis in different ways, how he survived the Holocaust with miraculous stories. How was it growing up as a son? Um, can I ask you that?
1: Interesting, yeah, of course you can ask me anything. Um, interesting in multiple ways. Um, it was a very um, strict household in terms of its German organization and kindliness and a certain rigidity to it. Uh, by the same token that rigidity extended to morals and ethics and ideals and values and dreams and goals and visions uh, as well. Um, So it was very convergent in terms of its orientation and sparked multiple interests, including the fact probably, uh, especially if you want a psychoanalytic, that I did my doctoral dissertation on Holocaust survivors. And uh, being a child of Holocaust survivors on both sides of the family, as is my wife, um, we're carrying, I think, a certain strength and a certain survival mentality, as well as you know pieces of the negative side of what it is to come out of Holocaust survivor families. Um, but it was a, it was an interesting, it was an interesting growing up, and it was an exciting growing up, and I think. Uh, That's an interesting time, term to uh, use. Exciting. Yeah, it, it, you know, you get licenses for everything nowadays. And uh, thinking of what it is that my parents went through, and my in-laws went through, and how they continued, and how they raised children, and, and looked to a future after what they had witnessed and had been through, I, I don't know that I could possibly survive what it is my father survived. Um, okay. I
0: don't know. I'm going to give people a little bit of an inkling, and then going to the stories. One, I think he was 14 years old when he was already on his own and running around the world trying to escape the Holocaust.
1: Yes, uh, my father had the unique distinction of having been in a German forced labor camp, in having been in a Siberian prison camp uh, during the winter, and spending two and a half years in a Japanese prisoner of war camp oh, when he was yeah. uh, shot down. He was shot down four times
0: he was, okay, you guys are going to hear why he was shot down. Okay. Wait till you hear why he was shot down.
1: Okay. Yeah. It's a very interesting history. And he was already in a forced labor camp uh, at the age of 14. He was born in 1924. Of course, by 1938, things were already hot and heavy. Um, Kristallnacht, he was put in charge of a team of horses to haul burning timbers away from the shoals and take them down to the river uh, in Germany. He was in a forced labor camp. He was already always a big guy, strong guy, fearless guy, which lasted well into his old age. Um, and he beat up an SS lieutenant one night. And
0: his father beat up an SS
1: lieutenant. Yes. In the, and when he
0: was in the sports labor camp.
1: Yes. And uh, at 14 years old. Yes. And the the camp was surrounded by a wall with um, glass embedded in shards in the cement at the top of the wall. And uh, he knew he had to get out, and he took a couple of blankets and threw them um, over the wall, uh, went over the wall, and cut himself even with the blankets, and went back home where his mother was. When he got back home, he told his mother what he had done, and she immediately threw him out of the house, which was the last time he ever saw his mother. Apparently it was a very wealthy family, and they had many false visas for travel. The only legitimate real visa he had was the transit visa through Russia. Everything else was fake. And um, they always had this in the waiting, so she gave him, uh, did my grandmother, whom of course I never met, uh, gave him papers and money and sent him on his way. So he traveled east. So he went through Germany, through Poland, When you transferred from Poland to Russia. Again, what year
0: is this? This You're looking at the uh,
1: end end of 38, beginning of 39. Okay. Uh, It was certainly before the war itself broke out. Um, He then went into Russia, transferring from Poland into Russia. The tracks, the gauge of the tracks was different, so they had to actually physically switch trains. During that time, all the stuff was stolen. During that whatever session, Whatever
0: stuff he had yes, taken with him. He, he
1: had a, you know, like a camera that was worth something that was stolen, and he had he had literally nothing by the time he was on the train in, in, in Russia. The train's going through Russia. In Siberia, they pull him off the train, uh, believing that that visa is a fake visa, and he spends eight weeks in a um, Siberian prison camp. Uh, where it was hugely cold. Uh, when I went to Russia in the middle of the winter, uh, and the temperature was many, many degrees below zero. Uh, I was in Leningrad in the last week of December in 1987, and it was like freezing. I was wearing eight layers of clothing, and I was freezing. Uh, my father said he spent the uh, whole time in Siberia, where it was even colder. just doing anything to stay warm.
0: I think I read it was 70
1: below below zero? zero. Yeah, but he said once you get to 70, doesn't doesn't matter it's 70 or 60 or 50 or 40 below zero. Yeah. Um, It took them eight weeks to establish the fact that the visa was in fact true, and he was then continued on his journey. So
0: they let him go to continue continue traveling east?
1: By the time he continued on his journey, he ended up in a place called Harbin. He He traveled through Manchuria, Um, During Manchuria was already occupied by the Japanese at that point. And when the train went through, Japanese soldiers came out of the train, they made them close the shades, and they stood there until the train was out of Manchuria. He ended up in a place called Harbin, where he was taken care of by the the white Russian-Jewish community there. But of course it was a language problem. He spoke German, etc. But he was supposed to go to Vladivostok to catch a boat to the United States. And he ended up at the wrong place, on the wrong boat, and ended up in Shanghai. Uh, he was an illegal in Shanghai. He found that the few hundred marks that he had in his shoe was completely worthless.
0: He's still 14 years old, and, or something? Yeah,
1: 14... Is all with 15, Yeah. 14, pushing 15.
0: Unbelievable.
1: Uh, he lives for two years under a bridge in Shanghai. He was an illegal, could not get help from anybody. And one day he's walking down the street. And he sees, he'd already taught himself Chinese by that point, he's walking down the street and he sees what he thought was the word Jewish written on a building. And indeed it had said British Jewish Officers Club, but the British Jewish officers were long gone. The uh, building was occupied by the United States Marines. He walks into the building thinking that maybe he'll connect with somebody Jewish. And these Marines take him in as a houseboy because he spoke Chinese, and when they were looking to go out on dates, uh, they needed someone who spoke Chinese. So they were teaching him English, and they took him in, and the first time he had a roof over his head, and they learned about his interest in flying. When he was four or five years old, he had taken an airplane trip over Frankfurt and was always fascinated by flying. And they learned about his interest in flying, and these Marines sent him to... The Flying Tigers, which was a mercenary group operating in the Southwest Pacific, uh, led by General Claire Chenault. My father actually got his wings
0: from Claire Chenault. And. Uh, Here's a German boy yeah. who escaped Germany, beat up an SS soldier, escaped Germany, escapes to the East, makes it to China, yeah. and now he's being trained to be a. Pilots, pilots by the American Army in Shanghai. Well, they didn't work for the American Army. They were mercenaries,
1: oh, the okay. Flying Tigers. He said when he got his wings, there were 27 people in his particular group, and uh, there were 27 planes in the runway. She right. said, take them, fly them around for uh, an hour, bring them back. You bring them back, land safely, we'll give you your wings. And he says, if you don't come back, we don't have to worry about you. There's more planes where those came from. And my dad said, 25 of the 27 of us came back. He got his wings, and eventually the um, mercenaries of the Flying Tigers were incorporated into the U.S. military. And in those days, you got a diplomatic passport with an American citizenship attached to it uh, if you were working for the Americans. So here was a guy with a German accent flying for, eventually, for the U.S. Uh, One of his saddest days of the year was December the 7th. Uh, which was Pearl Harbor Day. He uh, told us that um, on December the 6th they got orders to scatter the planes, that they knew something was coming, they didn't know where it was coming, and the planes went all over the place. I think he flew to Hong Kong, and uh, December 7th happened, and this is of course 1941 by this point, and the Americans were pulled into the war. From the U.S. Army Air Corps, it morphs into the United States Air Force. There was no Air Force before World War II. So my dad was one of the fledgling, um, I won't say creators, but certainly one of the original of the United States Air Force. Wow. Uh, He's flying now for the Americans. He's flying a bomber. He's flying a big four-engine plane and is shot down four times. Uh, Three times is picked up by the Americans. The fourth time, the Japanese got him. Um, The only crew member he ever lost in any of the uh, crashes was one over land where one of his crew members in parachuting out got stuck in a tree. He unfortunately lost his crew in the Japanese prisoner of war camp where I believe there were only a few hundred survivors out of 6,000 prisoners in the camp. When My dad was released from the Japanese prisoner of war camp after two and a half years. And he talked very little about those experiences, although I did hear him say once that compared to the Japanese, the Germans were civilized. That's crazy. That's uh, was his statement.
0: And he survived two and a half years in a He Survived Japanese two and a half years there, and I heard, I, I read that yeah. he basically says the movie Bridge Over the River Kwai is a pretty yeah, it's a pretty
1: accurate uh, descriptor of what happened um when he got out he only weighed 86 pounds he was always a big hulking guy very strong Um, but uh, when he got out i actually saw a picture of him uh, skin and bones and had to be supported on on either side by nurses because he couldn't stand Uh, he spent more than nine months in rehab Uh, during those nine months he eventually ended up traveling across the united states he'd never been in the united states and we always used to joke about what it must have been like to be an American soldier or part of the American military on a plane and then hearing somebody with a German accent say, okay, man, we are going in for the bombing run," or something to that effect. Yeah. Um, at any rate, he then returned to Germany in 1948 as part of the occupation forces. And so he shows up in Frankfurt now, having done this CIVO, having done this full circular journey of having fled Frankfurt And there's an interesting um, attachment to that story, which I can get to later. And then coming back to Frankfurt in 1948. So he shows up in 1948 now, he's born in 1924, he's substantially older, very changed from what he was. Um, There had been a non-Jewish woman who um, was very anti-Nazi who ran, I guess, the equivalent of a dry cleaning store. And she had taken the silver of many of the Jews and buried it in her backyard, hoping to return the silver after the war. My father shows up, we get our silver back. So the silver in our family that survived the Second World War buried in this woman's backyard. Um,
0: what does he find out about his family? Is he the only survivor? He's the
1: only survivor of his family. And um, we get the silver back, which was unfortunately stolen in Baltimore in the 1980s, but apparently uh, whoever stole the silver dropped one of the bags uh, while running away. Uh, so some of the silver we still have, and after he passed away and we had it the assessed, the uh, assessor was able to pick out silver that had been buried uh, during the Second World War. This silver that's there, and and my father took very good care of this woman um, because he had access to the PX, part of the occupation forces. Mm-hmm. So he made sure that she had food, etc. And she was very she had been she had been picked up by the Gestapo on multiple occasions, but they could never pin anything on her. Um, but a story from 19 from the late 1940s, my father's walking. Of course, he knows fluent German. Is walking uh, through Frankfurt and sees this huge bar that's right near the main train station. And a sign in the bar in the late 1940s after the war read, no dogs or Jews allowed.
0: After the war, they after still had signs the like war, that.
1: Yes, my father got his guys together. He was already a high ranking commanding officer. He got his guys together and he said uh, to them, uh, gentlemen, we have a nice job tonight. You're going to go into this bar and you're going to order whatever you want, to uh, eat, drink, etc." and um, he basically gave him orders to take apart that bar upon his command and grabbed the owner of the bar in a fluent and told him what was going to happen to his bar and why it was going to happen to his bar. And my father said when he went back in 1950, uh, the bar was still shuttered up. The guys did an interesting job of dismantling the bar and apparently leaving no table, chair, dish or glass untaken care of phrase it that way um, So my father is now flying all over the place and they, they, these pilots had interesting ways of handling things. If they wanted to go sightseeing they would get hold of a plane that needed maintenance at the end of their runs so if they decided they wanted to see Saudi Arabia they would get a plane that when it got to Saudi Arabia would need maintenance so they had three or four days to do sightseeing um, but I don't this like... non-jewish woman is also holding the silver of my mother's family. Um, They had been thrown out in the last week of October 1938. They were Poles who had fled Poland after the First World War to go to that civilized country called Germany. And they had been out of Poland. My mother was born in Frankfurt also. And um, very interesting story. My grandmother was an outstanding corseteer. She had undergarments. And even after the Nuremberg Laws prohibited the patronage of Jews, My grandmother was still cranking out undergarments. This is your mother's mother. My mother's mother was cranking out undergarments for the wives of the elite SS officers. The Polish government had passed the law that on November the first, 1938, any any Pole that had been out of the country for more than five years was going to lose their citizenship. The last thing the Germans wanted was stateless people on their property, so they started shipping the Poles out. Uh, The law went into effect on November the 1st. My grandmother was thrown out of the country with her husband and my mother, who was, uh, at the time, uh, 11. She was born in 1927, this was 1938, and they show up with a truck. Everybody's allowed to take one thing, one suitcase. My grandfather takes a suitcase with some family items and clothing. My My mother takes clothing. My grandmother had something very unusual at the time, which was a portable, sewing machine. She takes that as her one thing. Uh, They get over the border. This is my mother's family. They get over the border uh, after they've been thrown out of Germany into Poland. There are hundreds and hundreds of people milling around, now homeless, they've been thrown out. Where do you go? So my mother uh, and her mother decided, or her mother decided, that uh, they were going to go to Warsaw, and all the people they traveled with said, you're crazy, you don't know anybody in Warsaw. The other group was going to go to Krakow, and it's interesting, when you look back, that, that was the moment of life versus death, life, because everybody who went to Krakow ended up in Auschwitz. My grandmother was a real wheeler-dealer, went to Warsaw, She. my grandmother told me years later that she knew she had to get out, that Europe was going to burn and that the only way to do so was to be in the capital where the, you know, government offices, the the embassies, the consulates, the, you know, the uh, diplomats were, and she, she was a wheeler dealer, she managed to wangle out uh, on a visitor's visa to London, to England, and she got permission to take my father and my 11-year-old mother and herself, they went into England on a visitor's visa and disappeared into the crowd. And
0: 1938.
1: This is 1938? This is the, yeah, this is right before, no, 1939. It was right, to, right before the war. So
0: because of her because of her were, think, intuition months, that, that being in Warsaw, there's yeah, a better chance of, of escaping, that's how they lived.
1: I think she was in Warsaw maybe eight months. So if we're looking at November, December into uh, the early spring, wow. which was like months before the war breaks out, so, my grandmother gets to London, immediately sets up a business, gets picked up as an illegal alien, decides she's to, your grandmother. my grandmother decides yeah. she's going to defend herself in court even though she did not speak English, and it turned out that the wife of the judge was one of her customers. She was going to prove that not only was she not a drain on the British economy, she already had eight employees working for her, Needless to say, she remained. Uh, she stayed in London and became a very well-known corseteer in London. So my mother's family is in London. My father is now in Germany. He gets the silver back from this non-Jewish woman. back in 1948. Yeah, and, and, and this is where... I put By the way, 19- someone just wrote, like,
0: it's so wonderful the yeah. amount of knowledge you know about your family. Oh. That really is a very good point, whoever wrote that. that exceedingly, so many exceedingly important. of us important. don't have that knowledge.
1: We, you know, to sit down and let your kids know what your family history is and the relatives. There is there's a rich embroidery in every single family. Um, one of my training, my training as a clinical psychologist in family systems theory, uh, which says that there is no such thing as an individual. That every person is part of a larger machine called the family and what happens to the family reverberates through that piece which is you and sometimes what happens to you shoots into the system shoots into the family but every one of us has a rich heritage no matter where you come from you know and the answer is yes, and, and what, what little I know, I'm sure there's
0: more that I don't know that I should sure. know. But did you did you grow up knowing these stories? And we have to continue, we're in 1948, but did you, did, was he open with these stories, or was it only later on in life?
1: Some of the stories, he was certainly more open in later life, and when it became more popular um, and more permissible. There's a whole history to this. As I said, I did uh, my doctoral dissertation on, on Holocaust survivors. Uh, So I had to do two separate literature reviews, and one of them was on survivor syndrome. It was very interesting. For both Hashgothic reasons and psychological reasons, it was very unpopular to tell the stories in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, and not until the 80s, not until Spielberg, among others, made it acceptable and socially acceptable. acceptable for people to tell their stories and as they started dying out they realized that these stories had to get out by the 1980s your survivors were already dying out Uh, why did they not some of the survivors did tell their stories a lot of the documented literature and the psychological research that's been done uh, some of them told stories, and people didn't believe them. They couldn't believe that these stories occurred. Well, interesting. And nobody wanted to hear, and people yeah. just wanted to move on. Good point. Uh, a question asked to the Chazon Ish in the 1950s. is a
0: big rabbi in Israel
1: in the 1950s. Uh, 1950s, a big rabbi in Israel, the Chazon Ish, uh, and he said, "Dor lo which translates as, this is the generation where silence is the better part of valor. And a lot of the Holocaust survivors simply kept it silent. Until, by the time you get to the 1980s, and people are telling their stories. Um, very interestingly, the, after I got my doctorate, um, a significant portion of my private practice were Holocaust survivors. They're not around oh. anymore because they're dead. Okay. Uh, people who were unwilling to talk to Rabbi Krug, to talk, sorry, to talk to Dr. Krug, but were willing to talk to Rabbi Krug. Really? So they did this effective split on me. I was, I am one of the same. They do these two separate things. It wasn't going to a psychologist, to a rabbi. Yeah, and stories I could tell about that would be a whole separate entity unto itself. But uh, wow. back to, right, back back to,
0: 19, to 1948, we're, we're your mother's the, uh, family is uh, in London, and your father is just getting right. silver of both families. Well, he gets
1: the silver. Frankfurt. He gets the silver by 1950. This is the time where he's going to deliver this silver to my grandmother's family, which is the Horngrad family in London, and he flies to London, delivers the silver, and meets my mother. Um, Somehow is taken by my mother and and is now courting my mother. So you asked me the question about stories. Some of the stories came um, kind of like were told to us. Some of the stories I found out through the back door, what might be called the Event. I just happened to find out. Okay. Uh, one of the stories I found out um, through this back door was a very interesting story, which when I found out about what had happened, I asked my father, did this story really happen? He goes, yeah, sure it did. Uh, what was the story? I was in London probably in the late 1980s, and um, I'm being hosted in London and on the way back from shul, from synagogue, on a shop this morning and we run into this woman and my host introduced me to so Johnny Krug from America and the woman says Krug. Krug. You related to Walter Krug? And I said yes and this woman started yelling at me. Okay, well, what was the story? The story was as follows. My father was now courting my mother, so I know exactly when it happened. It mm-hmm. happened in March of nineteen fifty. My father's flying these big four engine planes around and he wants to see my mother. My mother was Shabbos observant, she was Shomer Shabbat, and um, my father is gonna arrange to fly in on Friday afternoon from Germany and spend the weekend with my mother. They've now met, he's now courting her, and he gets to Heathrow and Heathrow's fogged in. But my father was not not going to see my mother. Okay. So he takes out his maps and he looks on the maps, he finds something called the Hendon Aerodrome. A very short runway, so he does his calculations, and it's enough to land the plane. He's not sure it's enough to take the plane off, needs okay. more footage than landing, but it's enough to land the plane, that's all he cares about. It's like a little airstrip. If you're uh, anybody listening from the New York area, it's the equivalent of, let's say, Teterboro Airport in New Jersey versus JFK. Okay, so there's a runway. And on one side of the runway, there is an apartment building. On the other side of the runway, there's a forest. So my father plans to bring the plane right over the apartment building and drop it and land. All the they all go
0: see your to mother. My,
1: go see my mother. Okay. So uh, they had never, ever seen a four engine plane at this at this little aerodrome. Okay. Right. This woman who's yelling at me lived in the apartment building. It's Shabbos. She was Friday afternoon. And she looks out her window and sees this massive plane heading towards the building and runs out of the building screaming. My father flies in, comes right over the apartment, drops it, lands the plane. Okay, fine. Spends the weekend with my mother. Now comes time to get the plane out. And this is what the woman was really upset about. Two ways to get the plane out. You can either dismantle it and truck it out, where you can take a chance and fly it out. So he does all the calculations and they think they can clear the forest at the other end of, but what he, every runway has something under it called the overrun, and where the concrete continues but it's covered by dirt or sand or whatever. So my father's idea was to have this plane towed backwards so it's sitting on the overrun, which happened to be right in front of this apartment building. And what he plans to do is to take all four propellers, bring them up to full thrust, sit on the brakes, pop the brakes, to get enough thrust and maybe enough. We he meets with his crew, they, these guys are wild guys. you are gonna take a chance to get this airplane out. So um, he's gonna sit on the brakes, bring all four propellers up to full throttle, try to get enough of a running start to clear the forest at the other end. So he sends his crew in to tell everybody to close their windows, because with four props turning at full, they're just shooting this sandbag. So, uh, this woman never got the message. And she's yelling at me standing in Hendon Central that it took her six months to get the sand out of her apartment. <laughs> it was that embedded that? in the walls, the carpet, the upholstery, the cabinets.
0: How did she feet, know your father's name?
1: Because she was friends with my mother and was invited to the wedding. And this. So, uh, and I, I meet my father. I said, "This, this story happened." He goes, "Yeah, it happened." And he 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 kind of like vouched for everything that I'd heard from this woman about this uh, story with the airplane in the sand. And my father ends up by saying, "Yeah, it was probably only the uh, only four engine plane that ever seen there." Uh, somebody came to the Shiva house who had an interest in aviation.
0: After his uh, father passed, passed away, away. And were people coming and visiting. Him. Yes,
1: uh, thank you. And uh, in, in February of this past year, of the, this year, and he ha- he was a little, had a little interest in aviation and did research on the Hendon Aerodrome. And in doing his research found out that the Hendon Aerodrome was closed eventually because the runway was not large enough to accommodate modern airplanes. So my father's probably right that it was the only four engine plane that landed. ever landed at Hendon Aerodrome. So
0: for everyone, for everyone who's Jones, I just want to just this is Rabbi Johnny Krug. Right now Rabbi Krug is talking about his father, Mr. Walter Krug Allah Shalom, who passed away a little over a year ago.
1: No, it was less than years ago. Le- yeah absolutely Let, sorry less than a year i'm sorry a few months ago
0: three months ago oh my god wow ago, yeah. but uh, his father was born in germany escaped he, he escaped the forced labor camp escaped all the way to china became a US, a german kid who became a u.s spider uh, u.s pilot and in then in the, without, without ever having been in america yeah. and uh so, so and, and here he meets your mother in london because of this the silver. silver that <laughs> yeah, he, that, that he was given so yeah I just want to go back into your father for a second. He, he was a fighter, meaning he, he, he dealt with it. Right now we're just talking about like how the family developed and his, his survival, but he himself, you were telling me earlier on, he has stories where he stood up against anti-Semites he in many situations, up, but both in Germany and st- also in America.
1: Also awesome. of a he stood up for what he believed in. He stood up for anything, and he never, ever ran away from a fight. Uh, there was a story when I was a kid <laughs> Um, I jumped on my father's back, as kids do, and I ended up on the other side of the room being flung off the wall. (laughs) My father wasn't out to hurt me, but his reflexes were so lightning fast. He had a black belt in karate, but not like nice taekwondo, one of these. It is a black belt, hand-to-hand combat to kill black belt, US Marine type. Um, And um, he rushed over immediately, I made sure I was okay, and I was then told it's okay to jump on daddy's back, but you have to tell him first, because his reflexes were lightning fast. And as a matter of fact, when he got into his late 70s, early 80s, he said to me, I'm not going to New York City anymore. I said, why are you going to New York City? Because he said, if something were to happen, I would respond and my reflexes aren't as fast as, uh, as they were oh my god. And I wouldn't emerge the victor. But uh, he was fearless, and um, I can tell you a couple of interesting sure. Short stories. Sure, um, One was when I was a kid, I witnessed this myself, my, we were in Baltimore, Maryland, I was in the Talmudical Academy of Baltimore, which at that time in the 1960s was in a very, very bad neighborhood, and my father was driving me to school one day, and as he pulls into the side street to drop me off the yeshiva, there are eight individuals blocking these hooligans, hoodlums, blocking the road, and one of them says, hit me, mister. There were eight of them. I'm about 11 years old at the time. I'm um, old Buick Roadmaster, and my father puts the car in the middle of the street, puts the car into park, turns the ignition off, says to me, you wait here, I'll be right back, steps out of the car and locks me in the car, so this whole thing unfolds in front of me like a movie on this windscreen maybe took a minute maybe 90 seconds my father steps out of the car great eight, eight guys there and comes up with a flying front kick into the groin of this person who said hit me takes two heads boom, brings them together comes up with an elbow uh, on a fourth but this time four of them have run away and there was this one person writhing in the middle of the street. My father just bent over and picked him up like a bag of garbage, tossed him into the bushes. And understand, my father had no sense of humor. He was not a funny man by any stretch of the imagination. I think he had two witty lines in his whole life. And he unlocks the car, comes back into the car, sticks the key in the ignition, is about to drive away, and says to me, not meaning to be funny, he said to hit him. And um, he had, had another interesting incident. Um, he eventually became a um, an administrator for Jewish uh, communal organization, Jewish community centers. He built the uh, Simon Wiesenthal Center in Los Angeles. He worked for Kielos Chesren in New Israel, Forest Hills in New York, uh, Beth Jacob in Baltimore. And this happened in New York, this incident, where this is in 1969. So he was born in 24, He's in 69, you can figure out how old he was. He was standing on the platform one night, and in our family we still have this attaché case of the story. And he's waiting at Bleecker Street Station, and there's this uh, individual walking up and down the platform, and on one of the trips, reaches under his coat and pulls out a lead pipe and swings it at my father's head. My father instinctively uh, jerked up with the attaché case, and we still have this attache case, The lead pipe crashes through the attache case. And then according to my father, he got mad. <laughs> and the guy ended up with a compound fracture of the arm and a broken collarbone. Uh, he sat him up against the wall of the subway station. He says, if you move, I will kill you. The guy did not move. Next train comes in. In those days, there was a policeman on each train. And they take the guy to the uh, hospital ward of the jail. Um, it was a very interesting incident that happened um, at Shiva, at the, uh, the morning house for nice. my father. Hey. Uh, I'm telling you a story of something that happened in Los Angeles. He was in Los Angeles building the Simon Wiesenthal Center at the time, this was many years later, and he's walking one night, and he hears sounds coming out of an alley. So he huh? walks into the alley <laughs> himself, and there is a man there um, sexually assaulting a woman, and he taps the guy on the shoulders, the guy turns around, my father knocked him out, drags this guy out from the alley into the street, and there were no cell phones in those days, goes to a phone booth and calls the police. The police come, they take this guy away, this attacker, and one of the policemen says to my father, uh, do you want to go to the hospital, mister? My father says, why? He goes, look at your leg, and the guy had a knife, and as he fell, the knife went right down my father's pants, and superficially cut him from the thigh down to the ankle. It was a superficial cut, and uh, and as I'm telling this story at the house of mourning, at the shiva house, um, one of the people who was there suddenly said, I was there when he got this award from the Los Angeles Police Department uh, for being a wow. Samaritan, and verified that the story I was telling was sure. actually, in fact, true. Um, my father was a man of um, very high ethical principles. He had been chased out once from Valdosta, Georgia, for buying a Coca Cola from a colored machine instead of the white machine. Oh boy. And when accosted by the um, people of Valdosta for having utilized the colored machine to get his soda.
0: And he was accosted by the
1: whites? Yes. He was accosted by the whites
0: for using a colored machine.
1: Using a colored machine. They wanted to know was the soda in this machine any different than in that machine? They kind of like ran him out of town. Um, he, uh, he was highly principled and highly ethical and uh, was very intolerant of ambiguity and hypocrisy. Um, it was one of his um, issues of difficulty of trying to understand how in the religious world there could be people doing very irreligious things such as cheating in business, etc. And, and uh, he had very... Had very short views for for these kinds of situations, um, but was a was a pillar for 25 years. The last 25 years of his life, he was a volunteer at the hospital, and um, was very beloved by the staff, by the doctors, by the administrators of the hospital, uh, who actually many of whom came to the house of mourning to extend their condolences to us. We I mean, never realized how well respected and how much. Um, how beloved loved he was right? by this community for which he volunteered. And we heard about all kinds of acts of chesed, that he was... Uh, charity. Yeah, acts of charity. He was, uh, he would drive widows. widow... He was only, 92
0: years old when he passed away.
1: 92 years when he passed away. Um, that There were widows in the apartment complex that he would drive to the food store because they had no other way of getting their groceries. And some of them came to visit us and would tell us these stories. And he would ask, you know, how many stories we knew about, some of the stories we only found. You know, de facto, um, when people came and told us stories about him as opposed to us, you know, really knowing that. But he certainly served as a role model in multiple ways, uh, you know, to and for us. And um, he did take out, um, he went back to Japan after the war to settle scores with the uh, people who were running the Japanese prison really? for, Camp yeah, on behalf of his crew members. Uh, that he unfortunately saw die. For,
0: for anyone who's joined and missed this part of the story, his father was in a Japanese prisoner of war camp for two and a half years. Yes. And he's the only one of his crew who survived.
1: The, um, Steven Spielberg, whom my father knew as a result of, the, of his work from the well, uh, I, I think your father. daughter
0: told me that he, Steven Spielberg wanted to make a movie yes. about your father's life and your father Correct. said
1: no. Your father said no. Um, wow. Why? Why? I don't know. It's it's something that uh, may yet come to be, we have to see. He was a very uh, colorful character and uh, really survived. He could have been killed in Nazi Germany. He could have died in a Siberian prison camp. He certainly could have died in any one of the plane crashes um, when he was shot down. He could have died in the The Japanese Japanese. prisoner of war camp. And, um, you know, he lived uh, to produce children and grandchildren and 11 great-grandchildren, many of whom were certainly old enough to know him. Uh, His nickname was Grit. Uh, Everybody, there were some people in town who did not know his name. Everybody called him Grit. How did Grit come to be? From listening to the stories
0: about him, it sounds like the the gritty attitude of of his personality, but that's not it at all.
1: That's not it at all, right. Um, There was an article that was done um, about his life that appeared in the Jewish Standard in Bergen County. And I think the title of the article was True Grit, but it came about because... My uh, perfect
0: nickname, someone's writing, that. Oh,
1: good. Uh, it came about because uh, when my eldest daughter was born, I believe this was titled uh, um, Father Debbie Shochat. so when Debbie was born, she had not yet been named, and my father was calling this little being It. And my <laughs> wife said, well, if you call her It, she will eventually call you It. So he liked the idea. He became Grandpa It, and Grandpa It, which has too many syllables, eventually got shortened and okay. morphed into Grit, wow. which was short for Grandpa It, and um, by this nickname, many knew him, and some people did not even know his name was Walter Cruden, they just knew him was Grit.
0: So, um, unbelievable. So, um, let me ask you this. Yeah. I, from, from your father's resistance yeah. and survival, what is the most important, Important memory or aspect of him that you want to keep alive for everyone to, to remember?
1: Um, he was a stalwart. He was a pillar of strength. He was reliable, steadfast in his word. If he said he would do something, you knew it was going to be done. You knew it was going to be done correctly. You knew it was going to be done professionally. If he, he was a German, if he said he would show up at 3.45, at 3.44, he was there. And uh, my daughter um, had some very moving stories because he said he would be at her graduation, rain or shine. And it never rained at the outdoor ceremony in Queens College, and it was pouring. There was my dad sitting there in his poncho under his umbrella because he said he was going to be there. And when my daughter got her doctorate in clinical psychology in Giant Stadium, it never rained. It poured that day. And there was my dad sitting under the umbrella watching my daughter uh, get her doctorate because he said he was going to be there and there was nothing that was going to make him not be there. And uh, I think if the answer to your question is that is something a, a, a man's word, a person's word, I guess, in the more politically correct assessment of how things are phrased today, a person's word is their bond. And um, that was. That was something, I think, as a, as a legacy that I would like to pass on um, you know, to our children and grandchildren and our own hopefully great-grandchildren. The fact that he lived to see so many great-grandchildren and great-grandchildren that had a relationship with him and that knew him wow. and that uh, you know, will have their own memories of their time with him, I think, is uh, something so crucial to who we are as a people and who we are as survivors, not just of Holocaust, but of history. Um, you know, by all statistics and by all historical documentation, we as uh, people should not be here,
0: we're here. Yeah, and I, I think on, on, a, on a personal level, everyone should relate here life is sometimes so challenging for us in our normal lives Mm -hmm. when whether we have jobs or out of a job or or whatever family issues and struggles Mm -hmm. and yet here you're talking about a man, sole survivor you mentioned the crashes he was in, Siberian camp, Mm -hmm. forced labor camp of Germany prisoner of war camp in Japan Mm -hmm. and yet he continued and he raised a family and children, grandchildren, -grandchildren, great-grandchildren and obviously gave over a sense of life that in itself is just so, it, it, like, like we and we can ask, how, how? And someone here mentioned that their their grandfather also um, survived the Holocaust, and then he became a builder of Torah institutions and, 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 and families as well. It's like, wow, just on that level.
1: Yeah, and perhaps another occasion, I can go into some of the stories that I heard from my clients that are, are just so mind-blowing. And the human spirit and being undaunted in the face of such adversity and challenge and trauma and horror, um, it, it, it's amazing uh, that, that people have this inner strength that they can draw on. And certainly, my parents and, and my in-laws, um, you know, they didn't have role models of marriage to look at. They weren't given any instructions on child rearing.
0: Okay. No help.
1: They went. They went on. Um, in, in my doctoral dissertation, one of the people who was very helpful to me was a man named Rabbi Ephraim Asheri, who authored a ultimately a set of uh, responses on the Holocaust of questions and answers that he kept buried in the tin can in the Kovno ghetto. So,
0: questions that people asked that him, people asked Jewish him, questions yes. dealing with Jewish law, and he gave answers as a rabbi.
1: Correctly, correct. And in, he was a very insightful man. He said, one of the tremendous losses, um, in addition, of course, to we lost our most prized possession in the Holocaust, which was a generation of people, a generation of leaders, a generation of children. Uh, but he said one of our most incredible losses was that these people lost their youth. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, um, you revolted into adulthood at the age of eight, having to survive. And, uh, you know, without going into uh, stories right now, there's a certain truth to that. It led to a very abnormal kind of process of having to grow up, and what scars and wounds and trauma and pain it left in its aftermath. That's part of the tragedy that's not written about enough. The human tragedy, and it's going on in the world now. We see it, uh, um, you know, all over. what, What it is that people suffer in the name of some kind of ideology or the name some kind of
0: religion or in the name of uh, some hyped-up thing. Um, can we end just talking about the special multi-generational trip you're uh, taking yeah. place?
1: Yeah, the multi-generational trip just started as we're on um, Right Now Live literally um, about an hour ago.
0: So so Rabbi Krug's wife, daughter, and granddaughter have just went on a, gone on a heritage trip mm-hmm. to Poland. Oh to connect, not to see the Holocaust, but to connect with the Jewish history and vibrancy that was the Jewish people in Poland, the part of the family roots, uh, to get some context.
1: Correct, and the family roots piece, of course. Uh, my mother-in-law was from Lodz and spent time in the Lodge ghetto. Uh, my father-in-law, um, they both passed away, all of Shalom, with blessed memory. Uh, my father-in-law was from Tarnow, uh, which was a town to, the east of Krakow, Um uh, or Auschwitz was to the west of Krakow, and approximately the same distance from Krakow as Auschwitz was, Tarnow was. Um, when my wife and I were there in 1979, right. and we searched the town, we found eight Jews in the town. And before the war, it had been a town of 25,000 Jews. Wow. And one of the people that we sat, I sat at his table, right. this is in 1979, told me that for the high holidays, for Shoshana and Yom Kippur, they would bring in two Jews from Krakow, so there still should be a million, a, a quorum of, of ten, a prayer service for the high holidays in Tarnov. And this is a quote so that the world should not be able to say that the town of Tarnov was Judenrein, which was the German word um, for free of Jews. Uh, so at least in 1979, there was still a minion going on and um, and they're headed, uh, my wife and my daughter and my granddaughter are headed uh, both to Lodge and to Tarnoff as part of this heritage visit. You talked about the importance, I think, of family history and knowing stories and, and being able to actually physically see, not on a Google map, but being able to be at where an incident took place. and to bond with the history uh, that's embedded in the soil is part of our own genetic makeup and as well as part of our own personal history as well.
0: And I think the beautiful thing uh, specifically with you, with your family here we're here we're in New Jersey but you have family your daughter and granddaughter live in Israel yeah. and here they're connecting by living in Israel they're connecting with our eternal historical family connection to our land mm. while also going on this heritage trip to Poland, connecting with the more recent generations of, of, of Jewish history where the family is from. Yes. Like it's like a circle.
1: It's taken many generations to uh, move our family from Germany through England, through the United States of America to Israel. Uh, I personally have five children, and the third of those five children will be making Aliyah I'm going to Israel moving there permanently this summer. Amazing. Um, so we will have 60% of our children in Israel. and uh, it's a it's a very powerful positive uh, connection to a legitimate homeland.
0: Well, Abby thank you so much for your time Pleasure. and for for sharing these uh, fascinating stories about about your father. And I hope Spielberg does that make that movie one day. We'll see.
1: We'll get, you,
0: we'll get you to the opening. Wonderful. All right, everyone, thank you so much for watching, for your feedback, for your comments, and for share. Share this so other people can hear because these are stories that the survivors are. And his father is not here anymore to tell, but it's up to us to share this information for everyone around the world. So thank you so much. Shalom, everyone. Thanks for watching.
1: Bye. Pulse of Israel. Frontline videos from the Holy Land. Support our work by donating today.